So as I said, it's been a, been a while since I've been with you, but I'm, I'm excited to be back. I'm going to speak with you this morning on uh, the topic of faith and work, as you can see there from the slide. Faith and work. Uh, work in the sense of vocation or occupation, not in the sense of faith and like good works, but work as in what you do in your nine to five or, or your, you know, your side hustle, whatever it might be. And maybe as you first think about that, you, you kind of think, well, that doesn't seem like all that important of a topic. I mean, in comparison to all the maybe doctrinal things we could talk about or the, the cultural issues that we could dive into, maybe this feels like something that's altogether not that pressing of an issue. But for me, when I was preparing this message, this statistic really brought home the importance of thinking through these issues uh, from a scriptural and theological perspective. Consider this. The average person will spend approximately 90,000 hours at work over a lifetime. Now, maybe some of you guys feel like you spent 90,000 hours at work this week. 90,000 hours in a lifetime. That's somewhere between one quarter and one third of your entire life will be spent in the context of work which means more than virtually any other setting, work is the place in which your faith will take its hands and its feet. In other words, it's more than any other place, because think about it, if that's a third of your life, you also spend a third of your life sleeping. So the other third of your life is where marriage and relationships and parenting and, and all the other things we typically talk about come in. But a third of your life spent in the context of work. Of all the opportunities you have to express your faith as a living, active faith in the Lord Jesus, work is the one where probably you have the most time. And I, here I want to include not just the idea of work, like where you go and clock in and clock out, but I want to include a broader sense of work, that thing which you spend the majority of time, your time doing. So maybe you're a homemaker. I, I'm including that under this, this idea of work. It's, and what I'm going to get at this morning is that it's not just that work is a place where you can exhibit like a Christ-like character, where you get to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, where you get to be like Jesus in your interactions with people, but I really want to challenge you this morning to think about the actual work that you do, the actual tasks that are part of your job, part of your occupation, part of your vocation. Those actual tasks and roles are an opportunity for you to express your faith and glorify God in it. And so here's kind of the big idea of the message. I want to invite you into seeing and taking to heart that your work is an important part of God's redemptive story. And it's a crucial way that you're going to live out God's purpose in your life. So I want you to see this morning that it's a crucial part of God's redemptive story and it's a crucial part of how you're going to live out his purpose in your life. And so there isn't like a single passage that we can point to that gives us this biblical uh, perspective on work. But Colossians 3.17 is a, is a great one because as we, as we read whatever you do in word or deed, and then we begin to meditate on that and consider the scriptures as a whole, we find that overall the Bible does tell us quite a lot about work. And so you can kind of think of this message this morning not so much as an exposition of Colossians 3.16 and 17, but in a, a meditation, a theological unpacking of Colossians 3.17 in light of what the Bible says. So we're going to work through a couple of different scriptures this morning, and we're going to see three aspects of God's perspective on work. One is God's story for work. The second one is God's purpose for work. And the third one is God's power for work. So God's story for work, God's purpose for work, God's power for work. 
So the first thing we have to take to heart, if we're going to see our work in this way, see it as not just an opportunity to be a kind person, a Christ-like person, but the actual job that we do, the task that we have as an expression of our faith and an opportunity to glorify God, we first have to take to heart the importance of work in God's story. So we read Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But as we think about a little bit beyond that in the book of Colossians, uh, in the first four verses of chapter three, Paul said that we, we need to set our minds on things above. Seek the things which are above because you're seated already with Christ at the right hand of God. Now, as you first think about that, that sounds like what Paul is saying is don't worry about what's going on down here. Don't really worry about, don't give too much thought to your work. Don't give too much thought to your relationships down here. Don't give too much thought to all these things. Just be totally heavily, heavenly minded. But it can't mean that, right? Because he spends the rest of chapter three talking about things that are everyday things. He spends the rest of chapter 3 talking about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a son, what it, how we should interact as believers with one another. And so what does it mean to say, set your mind on things above in connection with whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? I think what it means is see your work, see your life, not from your perspective, but from God's perspective. See it from God's plan. See it from God's story. That's the language I want to use this morning. Now, one way of outlining the story of God, maybe a way that you're familiar with, is in four phases, four acts of this great drama that God is working out in, in human history. First, creation. Second, fall. Third, redemption. And fourth, consummation. And what's interesting is if you read the Bible and you pay attention and you just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think of this story and I'm going to look for this theme, this theme of work, you're going to find that it's actually a crucial part of each of those phases. And so I want to show that to you this morning. Uh, in this, as we unpack God's story for work. The first thing we want to look at, let me see if I can work this thing. There we go, Genesis. I can do it, guys. Um, two, two master's degrees, I can do it. Um, the first part of God's story is that work is a part of being made in God's image. So Genesis 1, 26 and t- through 28. Uh, in the beginning of the Bible, we find that, that God made us in his own image. Man and, male and female, he created them in his own image. And isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, okay, I've made you in the image of God. Now just go hang out you know, on the beach of Eden there and uh, wait till I come back. But he gives them something to do, doesn't he? They have a job to do. He says in both verse 26 and verse 28, let them have dominion over all the earth. Human beings were made to do the work of expressing and embodying God's rule and reign to the ends of the earth. We, we have a job to do in the midst of creation. Uh, likewise, in Genesis 2.15, the Bible adds that men and women are put in the garden to work and keep it. Work it and keep it. Those, those words, work and keep, come together later on in the Bible when the Lord is talking about the priests serving in the temple. In other words, there's a dignity to the work that human beings have. There's a nobility to the work that human beings had. There's something spiritually important about work when it's under God's loving lordship. In God's story, work's not about increasing your leisure and decreasing your responsibilities. It's about increasing his glory through your responsibilities. So that's the first phase of God's story. What about the second phase, the story 
of the fall, the story of sin. Work is not a result of sin, but sin makes work toil. Maybe you can relate to that, feeling like work is toil. In, the, in Genesis chapter 3, we, we read, uh, particularly in Genesis 3, 16 through 19, Adam and Eve, so think back to the early, early passages of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve don't trust that God has their best interest at heart. They don't trust his rule and his reign. They don't trust his care and his provision. They don't trust that the work that he's given them to do is going to be the most fulfilling thing, the best thing for them. They think there's something more, right? So they fail to trust God. They turn their own way. They reject God's care and his rule. And by doing that, they introduce a fracture in their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. That fracture we call sin. They receive a curse, which we read that Jesus removed just a few moments ago. They received a curse because of their sin. And do you remember what part of the curse was? That now your work will be toil. There will be thorns and thistles. So it's interesting. Maybe sometimes we think that work is a result of sin, but work's not a result of sin. Work is a result of God's making us in his own image, but the toil of work is a result of sin. So when you work and you feel like, man, this is unfulfilling, this is thorns and thistles all day long. It's not as fruitful as you want it to be. The problem is not that the work is bad. The problem is that sin has entered into this world and our world is broken and we ourselves are sinful. So God made us in his image to do good work and the work is not the result of sin, but, but the toil of work is the result of sin. Now the third phase, the phase of redemption, when God seeks to save and restore and redeem his creation and, and his people. This includes all the stories of Israel, but it finds its fulfillment in Christ, right? And if we say that in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, that human beings received a curse because of our sin. We read the good news in Galatians chapter 3, which we just read a few moments ago, that Christ became a curse for us, that he's the curse remover, that he absorbed the curse of the law. He took away the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took all of our sin and all of our brokenness onto that tree, and God's wrath was removed, and our sin is paid for, and his blessings come to you. And it's interesting that one of the very first blessings that Paul unpacks is the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? It gives us a multitude of gift, different gifts. We're not all made the same, right? We're all made to do different work. We're all made to be a different part of the body of Christ. We can't actually be the body of Christ if we're all doing the same thing. If we all have the same occupation, if we all have the same spiritual gifts. But it requires that sort of, uh, the full palette, uh, so to speak, for us to embody Christ's love and to be Christ's body in the world. And nowhere in the New Testament will you find someone say, okay, now that, now that you're saved, just kind of hang out, frozen chosen, right? Uh, until the Lord comes back. But everywhere in the New Testament, you get this sense that whatever you spend the rest of your life doing, do it as unto Christ, right? Do it for the glory of God. In light of the gospel, in light of the spirit in your life, live your life, do your work, exercise your vocation, Paul says, whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now finally, and this is where I think it's really interesting for us, the consummation. What is, what is God ultimately going to do with human history and his creation? He's going to remake it all, right? There's going to be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. We call that the consummation. 
the great happy ending of the Bible, right? God promises that he's going to make all things new when Christ returns. And we can think of Revelation, the book of Revelation, but there's also a really interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 65. If you read this, it's interesting that in Isaiah 65, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and it talks about God's redeemed people doing what? Building, planting, enjoying the fruit of their labor, the work of their hands. No longer is work done in vain. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, we, we are introduced to this new heaven and new earth as a heavenly city, right? The new Jerusalem. And you get the sense from the new Jerusalem, uh, John particularly says that the curse is, is no longer found there, but you get the sense in the new Jerusalem that it's, it's a bustle with activity for the glory of God. Everybody's not just kind of hanging out and doing nothing, wasting away in the new creation, in the new, new heaven, in the new earth, but it's there's constant swarm of activity for the glory of God. In other words, even in the consummation, there's going to be work for us to do. And it's going to be that the, the sin has been removed and the brokenness has been removed and we're going to get to enjoy that great purpose which God originally made us for. Isn't that interesting that at the happy ending of the Bible, work doesn't go away, but it's still there. So why am I telling you all of this? Why, why does... The God's story for work matter. Uh, there's a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre who, who highlighted the importance of a story for impacting how someone acts and how someone responds. So it's kind of a funny story. He says, imagine that you're standing at a bus stop. You're just waiting. You're minding your own business. You're waiting to get on the bus. And suddenly a, a man comes up to you and he says, the Latin name of the common water duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. And then he just walks away. What, you'd be left thinking, what? <laughs> I, I understand the sentence that you just said, but I have zero context for why you told me that, what it means, and what, if anything, I should do about it. McIntyre goes on to say, but if you knew a little bit more context, it would tell you exactly how you, sh you should respond and what you should do. So if the young man was a mental patient, well, then that would explain why he came up to you and said the thing that he did, and probably you should just go about your day and not worry about it. Maybe the, the young man had seen someone who looked just like you at the library just the day before, and they were talking about waterfowl, and he saw you, and he thought that you were the same person. Well, that would explain why he did what he did. Now, maybe he was, uh, you know, I've been watching um, AMC's turn about Washington spies. Maybe he was a foreign agent, and histrionicus histrionicus is the secret code word for the drop. Well, that would, that would tell you that you, you should respond in a particular way, and that would inform how you would act and behave. You know, you can see the same sort of thing in that great uh, philosophical art film, Monsters, Inc., where um, Mike and Sully, they learn the true story of the world, right? The children aren't dangerous, that, that joy is more powerful than fear. The, the power, the, a story, the story you think you're living in has the power to shape how you look at your life and what you're going to do with your life. And so if we take to heart the story of the Bible, the, God's redemptive story, then it can shape and change how we look at our work. Not just how we look at our internal character as we fight the idols of the heart and battle uh, against sin and, and fight against temptation, but, but the actual thing that we spend a third of our life doing. So take to heart the importance of your work and God's story. So that's God's story for work. What about God's purpose for work? 
Again, I just remind you, Colossians, uh, Paul said in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. He also says a little bit later, verse 23, we should, whatever we do, we should work as unto the Lord. We work for the honor of the Lord Jesus, whatever we're doing. You know, when he says whatever, he means whatever. <laughs> like everything that you do, do in the honor of the Lord Jesus. But there's also a sense, not just that we do it like in a distant way, like, like he's up at the right hand of God the Father and we, in honor of him, are working here. But there's also a sense in which we're directly working for him. Like whatever we're doing, we're actually doing it for him. That's what Paul said in verse 23. Work as unto the Lord. Imagine that whatever you're doing, this is the Lord Jesus that you're serving, that you're uh, making goods for, that you're uh, caring for, that you're leading, that you're giving advice to, whatever it might be. In other words, your work is not just not only an opportunity to glorify, to, to glorify God, but to actually express your love for God, as if God is the one receiving your work. Your work is an opportunity to live out God's purpose. And what is God's purpose? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What if you begin to think of your work as an opportunity to love God and to love your neighbor? We love God through our work in a lot of different ways, by sincerely wanting to do good, by working hard at it, Colossians 3, 22 and 23, by being wise in our business decisions, you think of Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents, by, uh, by recognizing that this is a gift and an opportunity and uh, the gifts and talents and experiences you have are a gift from God. It kind of goes with Romans 12 that we are the body of Christ together and he gives d diverse gifts to us. But we also love God through our work by loving our neighbor through our work. You remember this passage from Matthew 25 where Jesus said, uh, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. What if you began to think of your work as whatever that person across the counter or across the desk or on the sales call, whatever it might be, that person what if you begin to think of that person like this? That you're serving them as if you're serving the Lord Jesus. Whenever you're loving your neighbor, you're loving God. That's what, that's what Matthew 25 means. So what would it look like for, your work to be an for you to think of your work as an opportunity to love your neighbor? Now, of course, we love God and we love our neighbor, first of all, because God loved us, right? We love because he first loved us. He sent Jesus to remove the curse that we've talked about before, to secure that plan to make all things new, right? And now, through faith in Jesus, through, through the power of God's grace coming to us and the reality of the death and resurrection, we can be made new and brought into that story, into God's story. And because we've been swept up, you know, uh, we've been swept up in a bizarre story, a strange story, a wonderful story, because of that, now we have an opportunity. We want to obey our Lord, right? We want to do what God would have us. We want to see our work this way. We want to see our parenting this way, our relationships. And God wants to see us to see all of our work as opportunities to respond to his love, to embody his love through the way we do our work. So hopefully you're tracking with me. What I'm getting at here, let me just kind of sum up how, where, where we've gone so far. Work is not just a place where you earn money and then you take some of that money and you give it to the church or you give it to nonprofits or parachurch organizations so that they can go do 
God's work of the kingdom in the world. The actual work that you do is an opportunity for you to give God glory, to show your love, and to obey God's purpose, to love him and love your neighbor. Whatever you do, so long as it aligns with and is empowered by God's love, is an opportunity to serve God by loving your neighbor. I found a great illustration of this um, in Milton Hershey. Uh, Milton Hershey, of course, founded the Hershey Chocolate uh, Company in 1903, had that great innovation of adding milk to the chocolate bar. And what's interesting is that he he particularly chose an area that that led to not only his company flourishing, but all the dairy farms there in Pennsylvania around there also flourishing. And when the Great Depression hit, so he founded the Hershey Chocolate Company in 1903, but when the Great Depression hit in 1929, Hershey committed to not lay off any of his workers, even though the demand for chocolate went down. And so he created new uh, opportunities for them to work. He, He created his own, basically, public works projects in the town of Hershey. He put his employees to work building houses. They built an amusement park. Uh, They built a hotel. They ended up building a boarding school for orphans where they could train these young people in practical skills and uh, gave them a supportive community. And to this day, that school exists and it runs on the trust from the Hershey company. It's completely paid for by dividends and stock from Hershey. So every time you buy a chocolate bar, that's what I'm telling you, you're doing God's kingdom work, okay? But isn't it interesting to think about that Milton Hershey, what a great, he was a, a Christian. What a great example of how, how work can be a way to love our neighbor and to love God. He wasn't only thinking about the bottom line. He wasn't only thinking about himself, but he was thinking about the kingdom of God and loving God and loving his neighbor through his work. Now, you and I probably aren't going to be titans of industry, right? I know that. I know I'm, I'm probably not. But how might your work, How might you love your neighbor and love God through your work? How can you love your neighbor as yourself through what you spend most of your time doing? So maybe you're a salesperson. Maybe instead of trying to convince the person that's there in front of you that what they really want is your product, you know that what they really need is a competitor's product. And maybe you're willing to take that hit and say, hey, you know what, I think what you really need is over there at Company X. Or maybe... Uh, you just, you make stuff, you know, maybe you make some kind of goods and you sell them on Etsy and it's awesome. Uh, What if you try to make the highest quality goods that you can make and sell it at the most reasonable price instead of just trying to make the cheapest thing that you can and making the most money that you can? What if it's just providing customer, compassionate customer service to that annoying, frustrating client or customer? Anybody ever been there? What if all of those are opportunities to love God by loving your neighbor? So to help you think about that, I I have some questions. How to think about how does your particular work, because we're just kind of talking about work in general, but I want you to be able to think about your work. How does your work? Maybe you talk about this with your spouse. Maybe talk about this in in your home groups. First question As an image bearer of God, how does your work reflect some of God's work? So you're made in the image of God. Chances are there's something that you do in your work that that reflects the character of God. So maybe you're a creative person. Maybe you're a designer, an artist, a journalist, a a writer, something like that. You reflect God's creative, the the creative component of God's nature and activity. Maybe you you are a, 
a civil servant. Maybe you're a banker. That, doesn't that reflect God's providential care for all things? Right? What if you are a, a police officer, a paralegal, um, a supervisor, a lawyer, an attorney, something like that? Well, you're doing God's justice work, aren't you? He means to bring his justice into this world, his perfect justice into this world. Maybe you're a nurse, a nonprofit worker. Maybe an EMT, something like that. Well, you, aren't you doing God's compassionate work? That he cares for his world, that he sends rain on the just and the unjust, that he wants humanity to flourish. Maybe you're an educator, scientist. You bring, tr- you bring truth to light, like the God who reveals himself and is the source of all truth. Maybe you do redemptive work. You're a counselor or a pastor. Well, you're, you're applying the good news of Jesus, the grace of God, to people each and every day. All of those are different aspects of, of how God is working in the world, and I would guess that something that you do relates, connects with one of those aspects. So ask, ask yourself, how does my particular work reflect some aspect of God's work? The second question, how does your work give you a unique vantage point on sin? So we, depending on where we work, we interact with different people and different types of people, right? Right? How does your work give you a unique uh, insight or let you see a unique aspect of sin? Maybe you're in the healthcare industry and you, get to, you see uh, the, the ravages of sin as illness and death have broken into our world, right? Maybe you, you're a, a, you know, a paralegal or an attorney and you see how uh, even the best standards of justice are, are not perfect. They don't meet God's uh, perfect measure of mercy and compassion and justice. So how does your work give you a unique vantage point into the brokenness of the world? And then ask each other, how does your work give you an opportunity to love and serve others? What can you do in your work to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God by loving your neighbor? So God's story for work, God's purpose for work. Now we need to talk about God's power for work. God's powerful work. So in Colossians 3, we read, whatever you do, do in, the, in, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's calling us to do our work, really to do everything, you know, whatever we do in our entire lives, to do it in word or deed, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's, he means everything from that occasional interaction, from that one time moment to the sustained things that we do each and every day, all of it to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, on one hand, that's incredibly empowering and ennobling. It's amazing to know that whatever you do, you can do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when you tie your shoes in the morning, you can do that to the glory of God through Christ Jesus. On the other hand, it's incredibly daunting to realize what God wants for us is to do everything, whether in word or deed, as unto the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to him. But Paul really helps us. Because you, if you begin to think of that, that's, that's not a law, that's not a burden, but that is what God wants. That's how, God, that's how his church is going to flourish. That's how you're going to flourish. Paul helps us by adding that little clause giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this ennobling and yet daunting task, this doing work for Jesus, can actually become an expression of thanksgiving to God the Father. 
Now think about that. What does it mean to give thanks? Why do you give thanks? What usually has happened before you say thank you? Someone has given you something or done something for you. So that's the first thing we have to notice about the power, uh, living in light of the power of, of God for work, is that Paul is emphasizing that our activity, whatever we do, is a response to what God has already done for us and in us, in Christ. It's because, verse 16, Colossians 3:16, the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Because of that reality, we then uh, live our life and do our work as, an, as, a, as if unto Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father. When we receive God's grace through faith, when we trust in Christ, it empowers us to express our thanksgiving to God in our work and in our life. So the analogy that I, that I sometimes like to think of is that the engine of the Christian life is meant to run on grace. And so if any, anything, anybody knows anything about like diesel versus gasoline, if you put diesel in, an, in a regular gasoline engine, you're going to ruin it and it's not going to work. And vice versa. You put gas in a diesel engine, you're going to ruin it and it's not going to work. The Christian life is the same way. You put some other person, some other thing into your tank, so to speak, and you try to live off that and obey God and live for God's purposes, it's not going to work. You try to put your own effort and uh, willpower into that place or your children or your career, anything else, you know, we can talk about those, uh, those false idols. Anything you try to put in the tank to fuel that engine that isn't God's grace, it's not going to work. What we need to be able to live this way to be able to do our work as unto the Lord, to be able to love our neighbor through our work as we need God's grace in our lives. We need to receive, so to speak, the fuel for the Christian life of God's grace. That the, this grace is expressed as a, as a gift to us. God gives us grace in Christ. And when we receive that, it empowers us to live differently. The second thing to notice, though, it's not just that, that that's the reality, like that's the truth, like objectively speaking, what, how does the Christian life work? Okay, you get grace from God, and that grace changes you and empowers you to go live for God. It's, you, you have to actually take that to heart. You know, you can't just write that down like you got the theological question right. But that has to be the reality that you stake your life on and build your life on. And the good news is that this, this grace that's going to fuel our life Paul says it's a rich grace, right? So Colossians 3, verse 16, let the, Lord, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's interesting. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why can it dwell in you richly? Because it's rich, right? Why can it dwell in you richly? Well, it's because it's rich, because there's so many different angles to think about. It's so, so marvelous. It's so infinite in its scope that there's always more grace for you. Beginning with people like us, uh, God is reconciling to himself all things. And, and he's pouring out his grace. And when he's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's saying, come get some more grace. Right? Go get another, fill the tank back up, to use that analogy again. Fill the tank back up. There's always more for you. There's always grace. The gospel can dwell richly because it's so incredibly rich. In other words, not only is the Christian life meant to run on grace, but we find that no matter what, no matter how often you, you fill up the tank, if we use that metaphor, no matter how often you, 
you're in a home group are reminded of the gospel. In a sermon, you're reminded of the gospel. In your own devotional life, you remind yourself of the gospel and God's grace. No matter how often you do that, it will continue to work its fruit in your life. It will continue to fill you up. It will continue to encourage you and motivate you. It's a rich grace, and therefore let it dwell richly. Take, uh, take full notice of God's grace. Receive that grace. Just when you think, just when you think that you're getting near the shores of God's grace, like you, you must have reached the end, or you will shortly, just when that happens, you're plunged again into the fathomless fountain of his grace. For Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He died in our place. His sacrifice is of infinite worth and power. There's always more grace. So I pray that you will live in light of God's story in your work. You'll live out God's purpose in your work. But most of all, more than anything, I pray that you'll receive God's power for work. Amen.